I'm Travis Bader, and this is the Silver Core Podcast. Join me as I discuss matters related to hunting, fishing, and outdoor pursuits with the people and businesses that comprise the community. If you're new to Silver Core, be sure to check out our website, www.silvercore.ca, where you can learn more about courses, services, and products that we offer, as well as how you can join the Silver Core Club, which includes $10 million in North America-wide liability insurance make sure you are properly covered during your outdoor adventures. This episode is brought to you by Carter Motorsports in Vancouver. Silvercore has been dealing with Carter Motorsports for years as a customer for our ATVs, generators, and motorsport equipment based on their exceptional customer service and competitive pricing. And I'm personally very happy that they're bringing you this episode. This was a really fun episode to record as it's an after-action report from a recent moose hunt. While we had hoped to record this in the field, the hunt came first and we all agreed that there'd be more value to the listeners in hearing how we break down the trip into a before, during, and after, detailing how we prepared, how we hunted, and what we learned. Our group will candidly discuss dealing with a disappointment from missed opportunities, as well as tricks we employed, which ultimately led to our group's success. For a podcast that claims to be about hunting, fishing, and outdoor adventures, we've recorded a number of different episodes and we have yet to talk about any hunting, fishing, or outdoor adventures. So this episode is going to change that. Right now I'm sitting down with Ranger Rob, Rob Wilson, who is with uh, BC Parks and Search and Rescue on the side, with uh, Welty, Mike Welty, who's a former Snap-on tool and Fix-It Extraordinaire can fix basically anything that you put in front of him. And then Paul Ballard, who is our designated sail gear. He is the uh, the leader of the hunt. And anyone who's been listening for a while will remember Paul from episode one. Welcome, everybody. Hey, thanks for having us here. Thanks for having us here. So in this episode, we're going to talk about a recent hunt that we went on. We went on a moose hunt. And what I'd, I'd like to do is just break it down into a before, during, and after. Because we're going to have different listeners and varying backgrounds, I'd like for them to be able to take something away from this episode if they've never hunted before, if they have hunted, but maybe they might pick something else up. So why don't we just talk a little bit about how we all met? So Paul, I've known you for a number of years. I think some 20 something years or more. Quite some time. Yep. And we, uh, you know, through our association, both with Silver Corps and, and other things, we've often talked about hunting. And I think we we started to discuss perhaps we should be doing a, a hunt together. And uh, one of the things, you know, sort of co-occurring with that was talking with both Mike and Rob and, and trying to put some guys together. Uh, some of the folks that I usually hunt with, uh, one was backing out and wanting to go hunting pretty much this fall because of his training at work. Another fellow wanted to go on a fly-in hunting trip with some other people. So we started talking amongst ourselves about doing that. And it became uh, a gradual invite of, or and a coming together of guys that I thought would, would very much get along. Which, it's not just about the hunting. It's about the experience of going into the outdoors and spending time with some other people that you're going to feel comfortable with, that you can depend on. And at the end of things, you're still going to like <laughs> yeah, that's a big point. Now, and there's a bit of a gamble there because you've brought uh, a few people together. Now, I'd never met you before, Mike, 
And Rob, you and I met on a course that uh, Silvercore did for Parks. And I think that's actually where uh, where you met as well, right, Paul? Right, yeah. Yeah, okay. I had met Rob before and uh, immediately liked the guy, funny enough. You know, you just know when you meet people. And it's the same way uh, Mike and I are neighbors. And uh, you just feel, I'm simpatico with this guy. And, you know, this this friendship, this this relationship can, can get legs and it's, it's going to be good. You know, you meet people every once in a while that uh, you're disappointed with, but these by no means were any kind of disappointment. No, very hard not to like, that's for sure. <laughs> so uh, we decided we wanted to do a moose hunt. So we all put in for a draw. Paul, you did a recce on a few different areas and came up with an area in northern BC that you thought would just be perfect. Yes, we won't get too specific on that. Uh, it's an area where we'd had success before. Um, the Traditionally, the moose hunt is not what it used to be in many parts of the province. The availability of the animal, the uh, the numbers are, are not what they, they have traditionally been recognized to be in BC, but this is an area where I, I feel they were good. You're not looking to get a, a magnificent cranker bull from that area, but there's going to be consistent animals. And, and, and that was an important part of planning the hunt. So we all put in and few of us got a, a group draw. Yeah. So again, I don't want to monopolize things here, but uh, the uh, bison and, and moose in the province allow for a group hunt. So if people are not familiar with the British Columbia system, um, groups of three or four can combine their application for this lottery hunt. If any one of the group is successful, if it's a group of three or four, they can be awarded to two permits from that. If it's a group of two, then if either one of those two people in the group are successful, they'll get awarded a singular permit. Now, we initially had some other people that were included in the group. Uh, your group didn't get <laughs> Hey, we got on the bison. But, and when it comes back, when the results come back, they, they come listed by name. And you know, the first person, Rob, who is on that list is the person that actually got drawn. So he was drawn. Mike and I were in that group. So we were able to share two bull tags between our group of three. The area for any bull uh, was reliant on you having the, the limited entry tag, but you were able to go to hunt there based on the fact there was an open season during that time on immature bull moose. Right. And I just couldn't take mature bull moose. You couldn't take a mature bull moose. That's correct. Sure was glad that you joined us on that hunt, though, Travis. I really enjoyed your company, and, and you brought Finn along with you, which was a real treat for for our trip to, to have Finn there, young Finn, and uh, watch him and go through his process of interacting with the, the old boys and, and uh, being part of a larger hunting camp. That was really rewarding for me. Well, I think that's a very important thing for him as well, you know, and thank you for that. Uh, Ten years old, all he wanted to do was get his uh, fish and wildlife ID number. And so he studied for months and months prior to his birthday. On his birthday, he did his core. He immediately went into the uh, Wildlife Federation, got his uh, graduation certificate and went straight over to the government office. And I mean, we got a picture of him. He couldn't be more happy with himself. Yeah, that's awesome. So this was uh, this is a huge step for a 10-year-old to be able to come in and to be invited, which was great, uh, by everybody else to to participate in a in a moose hunt. And that was uh, his first moose hunt. 
and um, he, you know he's still talking about it. Yeah, that's great. Well, I I sure enjoyed his company. And Mike, you agree. You've been on moose hunts before, have you? I have not. That was your very <clears throat> first moose hunt. Yeah, this was my very first one. I started hunting deer probably about uh, five years ago, six years ago, and I had pretty good success with it. And that's why I was really pretty happy and excited that my good neighbor, Paul Ballard, had invited me to come along. I thought, well, that must mean that maybe I, maybe there's a place for me. Maybe there's a fit. And so, yeah, I was excited. It was, I learned a lot. It was, it was really neat. Well, there's definitely a fit. So uh, Paul, having uh, been on many of these hunts in the past, was the uh, the Selgar. Am I pronouncing that properly? Selgar. It's. I mean, it's Gaelic for you know the the leader of the hunt. So I, I, you could have used it if somebody was out there with the horn in front of the foxes. But well, <laughs> I dug that up a few years ago to, to I think to use as like a, an email handle. <laughs> okay. And looking for something unique, and I adopted that one. We started it out by, you know, the first thing was to, for everyone to put in for their, their limited entry draw. And once we had basically everybody was behaving like children waiting for Christmas morning, but this isn't a, a regular thing knowing when Christmas morning is going to come, but every day getting onto the B or to the uh, BC Ministry of the Environment website, checking to see if the results were in. And sure enough, that morning came and uh, the text started going around. Yeah. Hey, how'd you do? How'd you do? How'd you do? And we had some success. We we knew, even in the shared context of the hunt, like beyond the group hunt, everybody was going to share within whatever bounty we might have been fortunate enough to harvest. So that part was now in place. We, we had a purpose. Uh, we started to organize equipment. So that's a very common thing uh, within a group of, of this many people. Uh, people have certain types of equipment you want to bring, vehicles, uh, off-road vehicles, saws, you name it, everything from tents, soup to nuts. And we started working on that. So we, we all met up at the pub and got pen and paper, took, took a look at the area we're going to be in and started divvying up different roles and responsibilities and different tools that people would be bringing into the hunt. Of course, Paul being the great chef that he is, was uh, magnanimous enough to offer to do uh, the cooking for the trip, but everybody would have to take one evening meal. Yeah. Yeah. And that worked out well. I was going to say, uh, I've been very fortunate in my kind of path of, uh, as a hunter in that I've picked good hunting mentors and good hunting, uh, partners. And I'm very fortunate to have met Paul because he's a great chef and <laughs> great camp cook. And, and I hunt a lot with Dylan Ayers over at Eat Wild, who's also a great camp cook. And it's inspiring to try to live up to uh, some of the, the the foodie leadership that uh, they both have offered in hunt camp. It's wonderful to to come back from the field and have the ability to take part in an amazing meal around the campfire with a, with a bunch of your your community. And certainly, if it was me on my own, I'd probably be eating out of a plastic bag, some freeze-dried food or something like that. But uh, these guys are great. Well, yeah. and, and that is indeed it. I mean, how many times, you know, I've heard the quote, we haven't suffered enough. Um, I've suffered plenty on what I've eaten and, and had some horrible meals. And I realized that, you know what, when there's not a whole lot occupying your time, uh, well, it is if you're, if you're fortunate to have made a harvest and you've got to do preparations on the meat and, and so on. But otherwise, why not? Why not make it a true holiday in so many actual sense of the word. And even on some of the fly-in trips that we've been on, we, we've strived 
to uh, to have a real treat when it comes down to the evening mealtime. Morning, you know, a cup of noodles and uh, or cereal or whatever like that is is what you have. But but that evening meal can can make a big difference on the, the outlook of things. Yeah, I was really surprised at how actually everybody, when we got all together and made a plan to uh, put this trip together and whose responsibility was going to be bringing different products and things and tools to the table, that actually when we got out there, how we didn't even have to talk much or de- delegate much. Everybody took on a responsibility on their own and some people went and got, you know, um, firewood, others were cooking, others were cleaning. Um it flowed really well. I'm, I was actually shocked and surprised how well it went. Yeah, and, and that's very true, Mike, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to have that planning in, in place and then to see the plan come to fruition when you're, when you're there together. I mean, we're still kind of talking in the before stage here, but there's nothing can ruin a hunting camp more than somebody who's uh, sitting on a stump all the time watching for everybody else to get the water or, you know, offering it. Yeah, I'll take care of that, but not taking care of it. And mm-hmm. and that's been an experience in the past that has sort of eliminated somebody from being invited on future hunts. And, and you know, it, it, it always is a, I don't know, sort of a mercurial thing. You're ebbing, flowing between the people that are there and, and who you want to invite, how you want to try people out. And you do get disappointed very infrequently, but nonetheless disappointed they're not coming back. But this is not the case here. I, I think we all know that guy. We all have one of those. <laughs> oh, that guy? That yeah. guy. Um, or those guys. Or those oh, guys. Or those people. Yeah. But no, I guess there's the... people. That's, those people. That's yeah. better, yeah. I think there's uh, there's also the sort of the unspoken side. You're going on a hunt. You're not necessarily going to be successful. So if you're not successful on a hunt, what are you doing with that length of time that you're out in the bush? Are you going to be enjoying yourself regardless? And although everyone wants to be successful, if you make just the success of the hunt, the harvesting of an animal, it can make for a very unpleasant camp experience. If the success of the hunt is going to be predicated around the enjoyment of the people that you're with and making the most of the time you're there. And Hey, you just so happen to be able to harvest an animal. That should be the icing on the cake. Mm -hmm. Yep. And and that is so critical in all this as a core examiner, as a core trainer, you know, from kids to adults, you know, people will come in and say, I want to get my hunting license because it's going to be a source of cheap meat and I won't have to go to the grocery store anymore. And that's so wrong. Um, Hunting is all about the experience. I've been blessed many times, but I've also come come home empty-handed, and and to understand that you know I'm never empty of memories, you know, regardless of whatever might have been brought home to to feed the family and and share with friends. If there was nothing brought home, I do have those memories that I can share with people, and and that's that's a really critical thing in the ethical approach to hunting to, to, to learn that first. There are yeah, for sure. people who believe that it's, it's motivated by greed, that they're entitled to something. And, and as soon as you feel that you're entitled to it, then you should find something else to do. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Hey, one thing that I want to do is I want to take us back to the pub there. And, uh, you know, Paul, thank you for, for <laughs> inviting <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> thank you for inviting me to participate in the group and uh, the hunting gods has provided uh, us with the opportunity to, to have, we were fortunate enough to be able to have the opportunity to plan this hunt and get together as a group. And it's the first time for us all to get together as a group. And the first time I, I've met Mike and uh, 
were sitting there around the table and, and, you know, I, I come from a background of, of being involved with search and rescue and uh, having gone on lots of, you know, complex adventures, alpine adventures, uh, big trips in the past. And uh, it's all about planning, right? That it's super important to, to have a good plan in place and to make sure that you have the right team with you in order to be able to not only successfully accomplish an objective, but to accomplish that objective with a margin of safety. And, uh, you know, aside from the visiting the pub and having good conversations, very quickly became, became clear to me that the folks that were planning this trip together had some, some street cred, some experience under their belt. Like, I know, Paul, you're going through the list of things that, uh, we had to contribute that there was expectations that we would contribute to the group and how we would organize our trip uh, very methodically, which was great. But the thing that came clear to me was everyone had the ability to contribute to the team and not only to contribute, like I was trying to contribute some of my equipment, some of the things that I could bring to the team. Well, like I've got a chainsaw, a great chainsaw, Everybody on our team had the capability to bring a chainsaw. And, and, it, and it just shows that, you know, if you spend enough time in the wilderness environment, if you spend enough time out there as a hunter, you kind of bring together the needed equipment. And, and it very quickly became evident to me that uh, the folks around the table had the, the capability and the experience to, to be out there, uh, to work independently, but to work also as a team in a team environment. And I felt pretty comfortable with the group that we had put together. We actually had one more person in that group. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking of that, Sean Martell. We That's need right. to we need to mention Sean, and and there's a you know a, a great guy who's who's very much a contributor to any group. I've hunted with him a, a number of times, from fly in to drive in hunts and and you know heavy camping with him. Great guy, and we miss you, Sean. You should be here with us, and I know you're going to listen to this when you get the opportunity. Absolutely. Well, he was uh, put on course and for work reasons had to take that. And that changed the driving arrangements going up. We were going to have three vehicles going up, and that changed it down to two vehicles. My son Finn and I, we drove up a day early. We wanted to take our time. Being 10 years old, figured, okay, we're going to take a lot of breaks and make this as enjoyable as possible. And uh, the three of you drove up the next day. Yep. And that was a nice long drive, all packed into a vehicle together with a whole bunch of kit. And I know you guys all took turns driving, from what I understand. Oh, absolutely. It was shared equally across the board. We drew straws, actually, for who would go first. And, hey, Paul got to go first. I think it was because his truck. I think we had somebody that loved his truck so much that he just couldn't get out of the driver's seat. <laughs> uh, that's not too bad. I sure wish I was uh, in the back having a nap getting there. <laughs> well, and, and that was all part of the planning was, you know, um, you can take these trips. And when you are traveling, you know, 10, 12 hours... Some people choose to, to leave very early in the morning and get there as the sun is setting in the place where you want to spike camp or strike camp. And boy, it's, it's tough. It's come to be a sort of a regular practice now is to leave the day before, try and grab a motel or hotel the night before, and then enter into a shorter drive to the final, you know, final push so that you're fresh. You can do everything during the day. All the unexpected things can be dealt with when, when you do it that way we chose to do that. We drove up, uh, grabbed a motel the night before. The three of us did. You, of course, had your mobile uh, home on, on wheels yeah. behind you there. And uh, we went. But 
now I guess we've left behind the planning part, and now we're in the, this is the good part. We're now, starting I'm, to get into the uh, hunt. We're getting into the hunt. The location that we're going to, I had a general idea. Now, Paul, you and I talked about it, and when I was driving up closer, you were giving me directions on the phone as I'm cutting out of cell range. And so I, like I say, I had a general idea where we'd be. I knew that if I brought the trailer up and parked it, I would be more or less in the area. I was really hoping to be spot on, but I got in long trailer and what is it? A 20 foot converted utility trailer that had the side by side in the back. And so, um, get this thing out. I've got my uh, son driving the, the side by side ahead of me so he can kind of scope the area in case there's an, was it, was it dark then or was it still daylight? It was still daylight at that point, but it was starting to Just. get, it was starting to get dark. So anyways, we found a spot, Paul says, you'll find an area. It's going to be an open area. There'll be a game pole already set up there. And I found an open area in the general vicinity and there was a game pole. So I set up, sun was going down and We've got the side-by-side -side now parked about, I don't know, 15 yards away from the uh, converted utility trailer that we'll be staying in. And I'm in there, in the trailer. My son's babbling away about video games and all the other things that occupy a 10-year-old's mind. And I, we are eating some vegetables, going to cook up some hot dogs. Water's boiling and I hear a click, 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 click on the window, on the trailer. And then it's about six feet up off the ground, this window. And in a fraction of a second, I'm thinking about this, like, what the hell? Click, click, click. What is that? And first thing that went through my head was it's a bear. Then I thought, wait a minute, what if it's, what if it's Paul? And he's got his, he's clicking there with his keys. I'm like, no, no, that's stupid. It's a bear. <laughs> right? So as I'm thinking this, I'm already up and loading up the shotgun and my son's still talking away until he looks over and says, dad, what are you doing? <laughs> 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 this isn't a normal action of is this, is this my gonna, father. Is every hunt going to be like this? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, um, I think we got a bear outside. As I'm saying this, and as I'm loading up the shotgun, I hear a big pop, pop, snap, pop. And I can tell that whatever it is, is going at the side-by-side -side at the moment. So I uh, have the shotgun loaded up, tell my son, go in the, corner of the trailer over there. Just keep down. I'm going to head out. I got a, a headlamp on, turned it on. And of course the batteries are dying on it and it's not throwing enough light. And I can't even see the side by side. It's pitch dark at this point. And all I can see is two giant glowing eyes reflecting, staring back at me. And at this point, it looks like the, uh, whatever the creature was, the bear is what I'm assuming at this point is on its back legs standing up on the back of the, uh, side-by-side -side with his front paws on the back of the side-by-side. -side. And, uh, my son's getting quite concerned over what could be going on. And I give a shout to the bear and it doesn't do anything. And so, uh, I tell my son, uh, give him some bear spray, walk him through the, uh, the process of how to use it and, uh, have him, uh, there beside me. I kind of explain, try and get him calm down a bit. Here's what's going to happen. You know, it's, uh, looks like it's going to be a problem bear. I don't need this thing coming back throughout the night. Going to try and scare the thing off. And if I can't scare it off, it might get a little bit loud. And, uh, anyways, he goes back into the corner. I go out, headlamp on and, uh, uh shotgun up really close. Of course, looking left and right, like, you know, rule of one plus one, not necessarily sure applies to bears, but 
rule of one plus one, if there's one, there's probably two, right? And uh, looking left and right. And uh, anyways, I was able to scare the bear off. It didn't take off quickly, just kind of sauntered away. I don't think it came back through the night, but uh, in the morning we took a look and uh, it went to town on that side by side. It, <laughs> Boy, did it ever. Oh man, I was uh, fortunate enough to have uh, one of Dylan's uh, patented butt pads to be able <laughs> to uh, I keep my rear end uh, somewhat dry and warm. But uh, yeah, no, it, it ate all the seats out. Uh, it went into the back. There was no food in there and uh, got pictures. It went all around the outside of the uh, of the yeah, trailer was, as well. That was pretty impressive when we got there and saw the, the marks oh, on boy. the outside of your trailer. Yeah. 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 Paw yeah. prints and claw prints all over the side. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we, we were definitely in bear country, black bear, big black bear, not grizzly, but we were in grizzly country as well. I don't envy you that. That's an exciting situation that uh, is the, the wrong kind of excitement for us. Um, yeah, well, when you saw what he had done to the side-by-side, or she, probably he, you, you knew there's, you know, as much as you feel safe and secure in your RV, he could have just peeled that door open and, and come in if he wanted to do that. Oh, yeah. easily. It, yeah, it ripped so. the seats right off. Yeah. yeah. I had yeah. no idea there's a compartment underneath my seats as well, <laughs> which I do know now. You know, uh, I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Carter Honda in Vancouver was kind enough to be able to take care of new seats and nice. free install. So uh, I would uh, highly recommend they're the place that I purchased the side-by-side from and gave him my uh, sob story about uh, the bear and showed him the pictures. And uh, Not too many people have that story. That's good. No, yeah, no, that's, no. that's good. The second thing I wanted to mention about that particular situation was after the fact, I uh, contacted one of my friends in the conservation officer service just to, to kind of uh, explore whether or not similar circumstances had happened where bears had eaten the seats out of machines before quads or ATVs. And apparently it's not an uncommon occurrence that uh, there's, it's believed to be that there's some sort of like the petroleum product or some sort of attractant in the seats and, and Bears are definitely attracted to those, the seats on those machines. So that's why all those guys that actually live off the grid up there, every one of their snow machines or their, their side-by-sides or ATVs have uh, duct tape. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Covering the seats. Or it's probably really a chew toy. Yeah. Yeah. That's I think what they probably feel it's something they like to chew on. Yeah. Yeah. Could be one, another way you could address that is by, putting a perimeter fence, an electrified perimeter fence around your machine if you were, knew you were going to be in, in bear country and that was a problem. Yeah. Well, we were uh, in that area that we went to. Of course, we didn't have cell phone communication or anything like that. So the plan was for us as we were arriving, after you had had your bear encounter, was to get on the shortwave radio and we were communicating that way. So it was uh, interesting. We drove in. Now, to your credit, you were within about 500 meters of the actual spot where we intended on camping. I would later look at my GPS and said, oh, I could have given him the exact coordinates from the year and the year before that. I was wondering why you didn't. <laughs> just but because, I was, just I, for adventure <laughs> factor. I was already accused of being a techno geek when I said, why don't you just drop a pin with Google Earth? <laughs> to which I replied, what? <laughs> what? But anyways, you weren't bad. And then we got up there. So we moved over to what was our, what we refer to as our usual camp in the, in the spot, uh, a little bit more open. Uh, the, the trapper that lives in the area goes, oh yeah, you're in the, in the clay pit. He called that, but okay. it was okay. We weren't, it wasn't too wet. So it wasn't all that bad. And somebody had certainly put a whole bunch of duck boards down there that we could move around in. 
set up a pretty comfortable camp uh, bounded by your trailer. We put up our wall tent, which is, uh, I don't know, kind of a wilderness uh, mansion to me, I think. Oh, it, it's tough to beat the yeah, wall tent. Yeah. Works and great. Works great. So we uh, got established and uh, that was it. Uh, I think we were able to get out for our first hunt that afternoon. Mm-hmm. Check out the area a little bit. It was, uh, it was a lot of hunters uh, and probably more than what we had encountered in past years in the same area, but, uh, it still wasn't too bad, uh, as Mike would say later. So I don't know why we bother bringing ATVs or anything up here. You just drive the roads in your pickup truck. That's what everybody does. Yeah. So what everyone was doing. So true. Yeah. And what did you think though, Mike, for your first moose hunt like that? Well, you know, the, that we went out hunting that afternoon, like you said, and I didn't see anything. I, uh, basically spent some time at a clearing. I think it was on 12 kilometer mark and, then the next morning, I decided to go out the same area and go a little further down the road and went a little further, went to a clearing and I decided, well, I better have a good look around here. And um, I got up on the highest little log pile I could find and and uh, decided to get my binoculars out and look around. And I spent probably two, three minutes just looking around and didn't see anything. So I thought, well, it's time to carry on. And I went to pick up my rifle and I looked back up and lo and behold, there was a moose walking across the back. And I was so surprised. And now I was all excited. My heart's going and I'm not sure what I should do. Like, do I go after it? I wasn't sure if it was a cow or a bull. And I thought, well, if I go and walk rapidly through this clearing, I'll make a lot of noise and scare it. But if I go too slow, it'll take off on me. So I guess I kind of opted for somewhere in between and I did go after it. And uh, of course it had disappeared into the woods and I decided to sort of follow it into the woods where I thought it had gone in. And there was so much windfall and dead wood that I had to just virtually hike over top of each log to make any progress in there. So I decided it was time to take, take a little break and I just sat down and took my backpack off and started to regroup my thoughts and thought, what should I do next? And I thought, well, I'm going to have to give up on this. And I still had no idea whether it was a cow or a bull, but lo and behold, I heard her call. And it was the first time in my life I've ever experienced uh, a cow calling. It happened twice, but it was just too far distance and the, and the woods were just uh, too hard to traverse. So I decided to give up on it. And I went back to the ATV and carried on the hunt. I, I guess, you know, I will remember that. I really will because it's uh, it, it's something new experience. And once you experience something new, it's kind of neat. It stays with you and it was enjoyable. I carried on from there. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that uh, came up, became apparent to me is, uh, you know, I've, I've hunted all over British Columbia. I've hunted, hunted in northern BC. I'm primarily a mule deer hunter, an alpine hunter. It's It's kind of where... I enjoy spending most of my time and I love uh, the mountains and the grasslands and where we were, uh, Zippermouth Creek was. Zippermouth Creek, you got that? Yeah, it was absolutely impenetrable country, right? So it's very rare on a hunting trip where I am not enthusiastic about going into the, into the forest and, and trying to put together a, a, a bit of a still hunt. And the one time that I, I decided that I was going to like wander off out of a clear cut and wander through a patch of forest 
to try and hunt up a moose. I hated myself for two hours straight while I was wandering through the, the forest. It's just impenetrable country up there. And uh, you have to modify your hunting technique as a result. Yeah, that that black spruce forest, you know, that, that we see in the, you know, central interior part of the province is just so unlike any other of the, the ecosystems that we can hunt in. You've hunted up north I've in the northern Rockies and you get up uh, and sure it's black spruce, but there's natural occurring meadows and, and open areas that you can move through. It might be a little muddy underfoot, but... You still see for good distances. You can you can gain elevation to look down and and glass an area, but that uh, interior plateau is is a really unique uh, circumstance. And you know when people do try and chastise others for for truck hunting for road hunting, you can see there's merit to it. Oh yeah. You know yeah. in in the hopes that those big animals will be standing on the road edge when you get it, so you don't have to move it too far. And that's that's one huge advantage but also just the covering of ground and looking over all those cut blocks. I mean, it is an area that, that's been highly, highly logged for many years. And and as a result, you know, what has grown up has grown up over that shin tangle and and kind of, you know, from past practices in the in the forestry industry to leave all that stuff on the ground. It's it's tough moving. And it's amazing those big animals can get through it too. Yeah, absolutely, for it's, sure. It's shocking, but uh, no, <laughs> and it is. It's it's one of those things adapting to the type of environment that you're going to hunt in, and not being able to say that. Well, what I've used is a you know, there's certain things that always apply about wind and south facing slopes, and, and 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 those you know those practices always you know stand the test of time. But the physical you know still hunting, very difficult. Yeah, it was humbling country. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So yeah, so. One thing was, I think it's worth talking about was, is to mention that our plan was we had a certain number of machines for a certain number of people. And I think it's worth talking about how that kind of transpired and how that worked. Yeah. So we were, you know, the, the intent was there's lots of good roads that you can drive by vehicle almost everywhere. And, and, and as I told you guys, I felt that a Honda Civic would have got you into a lot of the cut mm-hmm. blocks. But to get beyond some of the cut blocks where the deactivations were, uh, we found that the fact that uh, Mike's ATV, his, 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 you know, regular style ride-on ATV was much more ad- adapt at, at getting through some of the, the deactivations, whereas my side-by-side, uh, Travis's side-by-side, a little bit larger, got lots of places. There's no question about that. But some of those deactivations were clearly... Uh, only surmountable with a, a smaller machine. And boy, that paid off in spades later. That uh, that was very helpful. But, uh, you know, using the machines to get around, not so much to hunt from. I, I, I think we spent more time moving out, dropping off into areas mm-hmm. and, you know, having the machine as a backup for, you know, transport purposes afterwards. And that's, that's the way I've uh, experienced hunting in that area before. Yeah, and just to add to that, I, <clears throat> I found it interesting that... Um, the ATV type uh, machine is actually very noisy, and there was a couple of times I was just still hunting near a cut block, quite close to the road, and a pickup truck would be driving by very slowly, and and it seemed just so much more quiet. Like it is, it was just, it was just quieter, and I often wondered at that time, are our machines scaring the animals prematurely, early, and maybe truck hunting has more value based on the noise factor. 
And particularly in that environment, too, you you know, you can't argue with the fact that there was a, a a lot of people up there doing that, and a lot of you know, apparently having some success at doing it. Mm-hmm. However, in the end, our success did not come. Or, uh, and I want to, I don't want to steal anybody's thunder, but our success was was from stand hunting actually up there. You know, using the machine to get to an area, but to an area that was inaccessible to anybody with pickup trucks. Uh, completely and and to take a stand and and just waiting watching careful of the wind and and the like so we'd been hunting for a few days now and we had seen moose but we hadn't had a chance to take a shot at a moose uh grouse a lot of grouse which is good definitely keeps a a 10 year old happy being able (laughs) to go out and and uh, do some grouse hunting saw a lynx that was pretty cool yeah we saw a couple of lynxes between us i think Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, what else do we see up there? Uh, we had a wolf. Black bear. Yeah, black bear. I, I, yeah, I seen two black bear. Yeah. yeah. Saw a few moose hanging in other hunters' camps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so we uh, did our morning hunt a few days in, and Finn and I decide, well, let's go do a do a grouse hunt. Let's uh, We'll drive the road a little bit in the uh, side-by-side because it's warming up, sun's out, the grouse will be uh, getting themselves warmed up on the road, and Driving down, and we see a, a couple guys in a pickup truck standing outside. Funny enough, in a pickup truck. In a pickup truck. <laughs> and uh, one of them gestures me over. And so I go on over, and he says, hey, you got your uh, got your big bull tag. I said, well, I don't, but in our group, we've got others who do, right? He said, okay, well, that's good enough for us. We saw a bull moose go into that section of woods right there. So uh, let's let's see if we can get it out. You take a shot. I said, well, hold on a second. I don't have my bull moose tag, but others in the group do. Oh, no, 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 that's good. That's good enough for us. You go ahead. And I said, look it. And they kept pushing. They kept pushing. Say, no, 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 you can do it. That's good enough. I said, finally, I had to explain to him. I said, I've got a 10-year-old here with me. What example would I be setting for him if I showed poor ethics, right? Oh, oh, okay. Well, I get it if you put it like that. Fair enough. So I said, tell you what. I'm going to boogie back. If you guys are going to stay here, great. We'll, I'll boogie back. I'll get someone who does have the tag so that we can properly, legally take this shot. So we do that. Come on back to the camp. Of course, Finn's very excited and uh, I'm trying to contain my excitement and hoping to, hoping that this thing's still going to be there when we come on back. And wasn't that far, actually. It really wasn't far from About a camp. kilometer and a half or something down, yeah. down the road. About yeah. that. Yeah. At the speed that Travis was traveling to get back to us, I think it was uh, like 30 seconds. <laughs> so, so I come in, I say, hey, anyone want to take a, a shot at a bull moose? And everyone just looks at me and I said, well, we got one just down the road here if you guys want to uh, give it a shot. And he goes, oh, I guess. <laughs> I'm like, no, well, there was no what, what are we guess. Doing? What are <laughs> we doing here, right? I think it took a second. I think it took a second for what I was saying to actually register. And I, and I got the sense there's probably a little bit of incredulousness thinking it won't be there when we go back. I mean, sure you saw it there, right? But anyways, um, Paul, you got up, you're in your side by side and all of a sudden everyone's in their vehicles driving down the road and then starts going faster and faster to get there. I'm like, okay, they got it. I got it. Yeah. yeah, Sorry. The interesting part of it for me was, um, I was the furthest one away from you when you were explaining this. So I was, I, no, I'm not the best of hearing, but I was doing the dishes for, for the lunch that we just had. And, and I kept thinking that the moose was down. The, somebody had shot it. And uh-huh. I said to Paul, while I'm doing these dishes, I says, well, 
don't move the moose. I'll come down a little later and I'll bring my camera and I want to take a picture of it. <laughs> and he's like, oh, well, you know, you could, well, whatever. You could just come down. I, said, I thought, yeah, I might as well come right now. So, <laughs> and then of course, you know, with my experience in the past with any hunting, I thought to myself, you know, I didn't have my rifle on my ATV and I didn't have my magazine. And I thought, well, I should take it because sometimes another animal's right there. And if you're hunting, you're always hunting. So I took it with me as we headed down there. Yeah, I figured I wasn't properly relaying, maybe trying to suppress it's, my excitement a little bit too much there. I, you know, I, I had no not... idea until I got to the corner there that it was in the bush. And I still thought it was maybe laying mm. in the bush, but I guess it was actually alive. So yeah. we pull up there. And the first thing Paul does when we get out, we uh, give a quick lay of the land and Paul, you let rip with a uh, fantastic moose call. What did that sound like? Can you do that? Can you can you do a moose call for us? I'm gonna move away from the microphone. <laughs> fantastic! So give us one of those. That's well, what we, we did a little that's what bit. We call the sexy cow call. We did a little bit first. Those other guys were there with that Dodge truck, and they were kind of saying it's somewhere between there and there, pointing to uh, like a a dog leg in the road. Mm -hmm. So yeah, full ninety degree. Yeah, corner. So, so we're thinking, okay, well, we got to contain it in there, and if he's still in there, he's going to come out on the road likely. So Rob went one way, Mike went the other, and then I called. Yeah, and, so there was some planning happening there yeah, before yeah, and, we and, actually start. Yeah, so the, it wasn't a, out. you know, sure, a complete cluster, as some no, people no, no, no. say. No, we had a plan, and uh, so we stuck to it. And that plan expanded. That plan expanded. Finn and I took back down the road to, to, to flush it out. Yeah, to, to make some noise down there further, because there was this triangle of, of woods that, it you know, the animal had been seen in. There was a a creek down below where you could kind of look across there. So if it hadn't been seen, and we're all on radios by this time now as well. And uh, so the group is now hunting. So Finn and I go down, we pull into the woods, start hiking our way in, making some noise, figured we'll flush out the moose back onto the road, back in your direction. And we're in there for not too long, actually. And we hear a shot. Like, Fantastic. It worked. We flushed it out. So come yeah. on back. So to what, what happened here was uh, with Paul's calling, the uh, bull came out onto the road on my side of the road. And uh, it was, I, I'd say somewhere around 150 to 200 yards away. And it just started walking down the road away from us. Paul called again. It decided to stop and turn itself and look back. And that's when I decided to take a shot. And the, the, the real mistake I made was I didn't uh, take my time. I wasn't in a better position and uh, I didn't zoom in on my scope and the shot obviously didn't work. And, but we did, uh, I guess, uh, we got a little hair from him. Got a little bit of hair. Yeah. And then we tracked for hours. Hours and hours. To Mike's credit, it's always hard to, you know, be the guy that has to relive that moment. And I'm sure you've, you know, spent the odd sleepless night since then, you know, thinking shoulda, coulda, woulda, but it, it all chalks up. And every single person that's hunted either has or will have that same moment occur to them. It's just, 
it is just that that way. It's, it's a part of hunting. It's a yeah. part of hunting. And it's something you have to square yourself with before you go out. Right. And you, you have to accept that. We got down. Uh, we could clearly see the track from the animal. Uh, he was moving soundly. He was, you know, often what you see is uh, an animal that's hit is starts to stagger a bit. There'll be some falling into the bush. There'll be scuffs out with their hoof. This guy, you could see just, he was, he was boogieing. He was, he was going away. And he was boogieing along the Forest Service Road. Right. He didn't go into the, he, yeah, he didn't go into the trees. So he was, he was um, totally taking the, the path of least resistance where he could move the fastest. And he was, he moved good. Um, so tracked him down into a cut block. Mike did a truncherman's job of staying on the track, staying out there, went back, um, I personally went back just to look for a blood trail. I wanted, because we hadn't seen any blood on that track yet. Yeah, correct. And I went right to the spot where I seen, uh, where I, I seen, that's not good English. I, I went back to the spot where I, I had seen that the animal had been hit. He did kind of a, kind of a little hop skip when the shot went. So I looked, I could see the scuff from his hoofs there. I could see where he turned and where the track we'd falling had begun. So I just carefully got down, looked in. About one dime-sized drop of blood was it. Uh, there was hair there, long hair, back hair, shaved off, and it was laying on the ground uh, just beyond where the track had turned up. So pretty satisfied, you know, based on my experience, Your Honor, that uh, the animal hadn't been too badly hit. In fact, probably nothing more than a, you know, as they said on Monty Python, just a flesh wound. Mm -hmm. And uh, so anyways, unfortunate. We looked and looked. We spent a lot of time. Oh, we, we and, sure did. And, and, was... and didn't, weren't able to, to find him again, but uh, yeah, that was good, but a big experience. And Absolutely. Was... You know, and for me, it, it, it's, it was a big learning lesson for me because uh, in the years of, of uh, hunting deer, like I said, I've been doing it about six, six years. I've, I harvest deer every year and most of them have been one shot kills. And so I guess I kept having a lot of confidence that it shouldn't be me but I guess it's got to happen to me. And that's why it's a humbling and it teaches you something, but I go back to the drawing board and I'll be uh, remi reminding myself for the fundamentals again of being prepared for the shot. He's still got a trophy though. I picked up some of that hair. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wrapped is... a little red string around it, left it on his pillow that night. So. <laughs> <laughs> you sure did. That was pretty funny. Yeah. So I think that kind of brings out the need to, to have a conversation about the methodology that you can employ and probably should employ uh, after making the shot. And uh, one of my recommendations is that uh, when you shoot at an animal, first off, it's a very exciting experience. And, and from the time when you shoot the animal to the time when you recover the animal, you've got a lot of work to do potentially. Uh, it's important to take a moment to... Uh, plan out your next steps. And, and for me, it looks like this. So I, I shoot an animal. First off, I, I watch the animal and I'm watching for the reaction uh, after the shot or at the shot. And uh, in this case, Paul, you did that, I believe. I remember you said something about the reaction of the animal. It didn't look like it was a hard hit to me. Yeah. He, he just kind of skipped his legs out a bit. He'd been nicked and that was the feeling I had, you know, based again on seeing a few animals shot over the years. And that was, that was the... The sense that I had. Yeah. Okay. So from, from the time when I pull the trigger, I watch the animal. I want to see how it reacts. And uh, the animal will either drop right in front of you or it'll wander off. And you watch how it, how it moves off. Uh, I note the spot at which I hit the animal. 
and I actually take a piece of flagging tape and I tie a piece of flagging tape to a branch uh, at the spot where I shot from. And uh, I'll take my compass and I actually shoot a bearing towards the animal. In this case, that wasn't required because the animal was out in front of us on a logging road and it was booking down the logging road and you saw it run until you couldn't see it anymore. Well, we saw it about three or four more times going down that road in front of us at, at distances of upwards of 300, maybe 400 yards, sometimes again, at, you know, at turning a corner, seeing it again at a, at a couple hundred yards as, as it went that way, you know. But it was it was a matter of, you know, everybody trying to get up to see. Um, I mean, the other hunters that were there, the one guy was saying, oh, he's heading towards water, and which is a legitimate uh, experience uh, that these animals hard hit often will will go to water. They often, to me, seem to go downhill. I've seen very few, few animals when they've been hard hit to go up a hill. Uh, but this guy was, his stride was pretty big. Yep. Um, and we got down. But getting back to what you're saying, Rob, uh, to go to the exact spot that you believe the animal was hit is critical. And a lot of, I, you know, inexperienced new hunters not in this circumstance, of course, but uh, we'll maybe take a circle route around or they'll walk away and then come back and lose track of where the animal was. And yep. it's critical to get there, have a look right on the ground, find those scuff marks, find the, you know, the, the blood trail or some hair or some indication that the animal was hit. And then to start doing just a 180 degree, then a 240 degree sweep ahead to see where the animal went. And it's shocking how a great big thousand pound animal when hit can go like 10 steps flop down from where you actually got to and you can't see it. Yep. They're mm. amazingly well camouflaged. Yeah. Right. And, it, and if they do expire there, so there's no sound from it, there's no, uh, there's no nothing. And you're just thinking, oh man, and you take 10 steps and you go right there. Yep. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and that happens a, a lot. And I, and I think a lot of people give up far too soon, mm. you know, and that's a, that's a sin. It's, there's no other word for it. Um, you have that huge obligation. If you pulled uh, the trigger on an animal like that, you you must do absolutely everything. And and I felt clearly, Mike, he was uh, going above and beyond uh, to try and track that animal down. So yeah, in yeah. this instance, yeah. And it was an interesting process. I mean, I, I felt like we did it right uh, after the shot. We we planned it. Um, we certainly we're able to identify the spot where we feel the animal went into a clear cut and started heading towards the forest. And we uh, took some time to carefully break down track by track where that animal had uh, taken each, each step. And huh. we used flagging tape and, and even bits of toilet paper to mark out the trail and try and get a, a direction of travel. And, and we gave it our darndest and, just didn't work out in that case. And that's because that moose was still walking. Yeah. yeah. And he's going to be there for next year. Yeah, absolutely. A little so, bigger. So evening came, evening came, had dinner, and it was quite somber, quite quiet. Obviously, lots of emotion, lots of uh, thoughts going through everyone's heads. But that's, that's hunting. That's something that people have to uh, prepare themselves for. And, you know, stepping into a hunting group where we don't all know each other, we don't know each other's backgrounds, I thought that everyone did a very good job supporting one another. It was, uh, it was very good. Minus the move of like putting the little bow on that. The that was the worst of that one. <laughs> well, you gotta, you gotta kind of have to yeah, do that. That's right. 
that was that was the worst we did on that one. There was no there was no you know accusations or anything. No. And I've been in hunting camps where people had had a bird on the, sure. the shoot, you know, and nobody did that, so it was all okay. But though it was somber, that was just steeled our resolve to, to try way. and get out there and, and certainly now we should mention that this whole time to this point somebody's resolve was steeled on getting the bear that had uh had <laughs> had made intrusions to the side by side too but they, they well, were sure I, was, I was hoping for that one that's for sure and an interesting area for the amount of track and and animal sign that was there and we saw everything from those big uh, black bear pad prints to uh wolf prints that were you know pretty much luncheon plate size they were yeah, they were some, some good wolf. wolf prints there too and grizz trucks yeah and we, yes absolutely so there was you know a whole variety what i had seen there before in that area which we didn't see this time were, were any deer track and mm. uh, there's not a lot of deer in the area but typically down you know towards the the lake shore often we would have seen you know smaller white-tailed deer track we didn't see that anywhere in any of the the track traps that we were we were checking out in any of those spots but amazingly big wolf there was probably some really nice wolf we did meet the or i had I had the opportunity to meet the uh, trapper from up there very informative guy um lived in off the grid for over 30 years up in, in that area like off the grid and had had his trapping license and had the trapping concession in there for some 20 something years knew every inch of the land up there very 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 friendly guy too. What a smoker. <laughs> in a half an hour, he must have smoked five cigarettes. I don't know how he could do it. Guy older than me, but he could move. He was all right. You know, and that's uh, a super important part as well. Getting that local intel. Right? Yeah. Being yeah. open enough, talking with the uh, the others in the area, respectful enough, and they'll share with you. And, and he was very, very open and, you know, without offering, but confirming. Let's put it that way. He sure. was, you know, he was saying, yeah, that you, you know where you are and you know what... Uh, you're, you're, you're in the right spot. So we kind of let off from there. Got some grouse in between. Mm -hmm. Um, and then. We'll fast forward a couple of days. Fast forward a couple of days. Hard and, hunting, early and, up, and hunting all day. What was happening with you over those two, couple of days before the, the fateful evening, Mike? Well, I was, um, you know, I'd been going back to the same areas and I decided I had to explore the area a bit being the first time up there. And I thought it's time to get around and, and have a look and see what other opportunities, see, uh, look for more sign. I went to one area and decided to, to try my calling again. And uh, I was actually uh, also very surprised that in this one time I called and I think it was within probably three minutes, a cow comes running out into the clearing and came right up along the side and probably came within 60 yards of me. Me being new to the to the moose hunting, I had no idea. I thought that this should be a bull. It's like, why would a cow come? But of course, talking to Paul, he's, uh, he informs me that sometimes they're attracted to the fact that maybe there is an, uh, that maybe there is a bull over there, and so that uh, that was also a great experience for me because it was the first time that I were able to actually call and have actually a reaction and something actually work out for me. We and don't want to be too misogynistic, you know. Yeah. Women, women have urges. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then after that, I decided to just do more discovering in other areas. And that's when I came upon um, a couple of what they call deactivations, where the loggers and the industry doesn't want anybody to go past. Um, so they basically pull out a bridge 
And fortunately, with that uh, trapper that Paul had met, has has, uh, his trap lines there, that he had built a couple of uh, ATV bridges across these these little creeks and rivers. So I was able to pass them with my ATV being smaller and uh, narrower. And I went into another clearing and found more sign, a lot more tracks for moose there. And as I went further, I found there was even another deactivation. And so I crossed that. And actually in that area, there was up to three different deactivations. Large, wonderful areas for moose. Um, seen a couple moose in there. And it got me excited. And, and unfortunately, no opportunities for myself. But that led us to decide to maybe we need to get a few more guys in there. You were taking some good pictures. You're seeing lots of sign. You're seeing uh, the moose out there. And Virtually every day I would see a cow, at least one, if not a cow and calf. And so, yeah, I was, you know, it, was, it's, it felt close. It, was you know, it, it felt close. It was a good area. Yeah. yeah. And, and like Mike said, the deactivations were stopping. It, you know, general access was low in there. So they weren't being disturbed by other hunters. You know, there was a lot of people that, it was the odd person walking into that area that we encountered. They'd park their truck, but nowhere uh, near the kind of pressure that the roads were were sustaining at that time. And so, again, this takes us back and forth. Pickup truck, quiet, covers lots of ground, you know, picks up your odds. But I think you favor your odds when you can get into some place that's it's a little quieter, you know. Yeah, that's, tr- that's true. I, I agree with you, Paul. And I think it's important to recognize that Mike actually was probably the most successful hunter when it comes to, when it came to actually seeing wildlife, when it came to Mm -hmm. seeing moose and and a bunch of moose, Mike, you covered a bunch of territory on your, your ATV. You you saw a lot of country. And as a result, it seems like you saw a significant amount more moose than, than any of the other hunters in our group. And, and I think that's because you covered so much ground in, in the course of your day, which is like the exact opposite of the way that I was hunting. I was relying on other people to put me in a spot. And then I was basically hanging out in the wilderness and, and, and uh, uh, I was on my feet and it didn't work out so well for me for the most part. So I was due to take off the next day and Mike says, Rob, why don't you jump on the back of my ATV? I've been having some good luck in this one area. Come with me. So you guys did. Why don't you tell us uh, about how that worked out? Well, yeah, I guess I I was excited because to me, I seen the most sign in that area. Uh, More so, like Paul was saying, because it wasn't pressured by other people being able to access it. You had to go through these two deactivations and most people didn't want to walk it. And side-by-sides were probably a little bit big to get across, so they weren't even going in there. So I I asked Rob, I said, well, if you want to come to a new area, I'll bring you in. And uh, yeah, he was willing. We decided to bring you in there that one evening and um, I brought you to a spot that was uh, had great vegetation. It was a large clearing, probably a kilometer by a kilometer. In, 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 in size, you know, and I dropped you off at one spot and explained to you where I had seen them. And, and, uh, I said, if you head that way, you know, good luck. And I decided to go another way. And I guess you can let us know maybe what, what did you think? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, at that point in the hunt, I, I felt kind of discouraged. Um, it's, it's a different 
it's a hunt that I'm not used to, and I'm not used to relying on other people for transportation. I'm used to being able to kind of find my own way, and certainly throughout the course of the hunt, as much as I had a great time in camp and uh, I had my own experiences being on foot, I I felt somewhat discouraged having to rely on other people to kind of shepherd me around the wilderness and, and drop me off in these locations, and I get picked up at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, Mike had seen many moose and, and it was obvious that he was kind of, um, focusing on a zone that had a higher likelihood of success. So, yeah, I just thought it was an area that because of it being so vast and large that, um, I can only see so much in one spot. And I thought with the hunters we had, I thought, well, why not have one person being in one area and I can still be down in another clearing that needed to be covered also. So I really thought it would be better to have two people in there than than one, and maybe even three would have been better. Yeah, so Mike drops me off. Uh, he drops me off in the middle of this desolate moonscape, essentially. There's this, like, significant clear cut. Like, we drove into this this clear cut, and, and as Mike had so eloquently said, it was deactivated. And we drive through the deactivation a couple kilometers and all of a sudden this clear cut opens up and it goes forever, right? On both sides of the road, they're pretty significant clear cuts in that country. And uh, there's a spur road, Mike drops me off at us, says, gee, this is a big clear cut. There's lots of good vegetation in there and explains to me how he'd hunted it in the past. I'm like, eh, in my mind, I'm like, holy crap, this is like, this is big, big clear cut. And there's no way there's going to be a moose standing in the middle of this clear cut, right? But I walk through it and there's giant windrows of trees that are basically low value trees that are wet, left on the side of the road. And uh, um, one of the tacks is to climb up on top of a tree pile so you can, you can see into the vegetation of the clear cut. Anyways, I walked around this clear cut for a couple of hours because that's how long it took me to, to actually walk these forest service roads. Found the best spot that I thought I would like to hunt from with the best vantage point. And I sat down um, just off the road uh, in between a couple of these these large wind rows. And uh, I crack off my sexy cow call that Paul taught me. And my sexy cow call does not sound anything like this. So, my sexy cow call sounds like that, but with emphysema. Um, <laughs> so, one. yeah, I, I tried calling for a little bit, sat, called for a little bit. And then I guess I should mention, I'm half deaf. I, I worked as an automotive machinist for many, many years before it was cool to have earplugs. And, and I teach my coworkers how to use firearms at work. I, I shoot. And uh, yeah, as a result, I, I, I'm not blessed in the hearing front but I think I hear just off the edge of the clear cut in the forest directly across from me like the the shortest distance across from me I think I hear some noise in the brush like it could actually be a bull moose raking the brush so I got excited for a minute there and I let out another call and it's that high and low right you're excited you think you hear something and you blast out that other call and you wait and nothing happens. 
So I resigned myself to my ears playing tricks on me. Of course, this is a process of waiting, and I knew I had until last night when Mike was going to pick me up. And uh, I call again. 10 minutes, 15 minutes later, I call again. And I see movement out in the corner of my eye, about 600 yards away. I bring my binoculars up, and lo and behold, there's a big old dark moose walking towards me. That was pretty exciting. Uh, the bull moose was headed right in my direction, coming right for me, and then it stopped. And I would play with it a little bit and call again, and the moose would, from this point where it would be stopped and quartered away from me, it turn around and I'd start heading in my direction to the point where it got to within 500 yards. And I actually picked my rifle up and looked at it through my scope thinking, ooh, should I take that shot? Because the wind was not really in my favor. I was concerned. But I didn't take the shot. I called, and it kept coming. I called, and it kept coming. It would stall up every 50, 100 yards. And uh, eventually, I had to watch this moose walk behind one of those big windrows and not know that it was going to come out the other side. And that was one of the most nerve-wracking moments of my life to try and think about whether I take that shot, the lower odd shot at a long distance, or I try to call it in to nice and close. I chose to be conservative, called it, or tried to call it in nice and close, and uh, fortunately, it cooperated. Uh, I got a good shot, or I found a good uh, sight picture in between some vegetation, held my rifle there, and unfortunately, the wind was blowing right towards that window of opportunity. And I knew that as soon as the moose stepped into that, that shooting lane, uh, it would win me. So I would have to be efficient in my shooting. Uh, so I waited. The moose walked right into my shooting lane. I was like, one more step. I took the step. I pulled the trigger. And uh, the moose went down. It was great. Very fortunate. And it was that last light. Yeah. Was it last night? We had started. Paul had started making some dinner, some food up, and yeah, we're back at camp. You and I and 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 Finn are back at camp, and we heard the. We heard the shot. I'm making a face. I should make a face. I need to be. It's going to show up here. That's right. It's going to show well on the podcast. <laughs> we looked, and did we hear another shot? Nope. I think we just heard one shot. Just there. the one. Yeah. yeah. And then we're thinking. We waited and we waited, and then we. Darn radios. Yeah. We were trying to communicate, but we were getting back and forth on the radios, but pretty much got confirmed that that Rob had uh, had, had harvested a moose. Well, there was a period of time there where it was a little uncertain, probably about 20 minutes or so, and uh, there was definitely a lot of excitement back at camp because we knew, you know in your gut, you know yeah. this is different, people should be coming back now, we should be in radio distance, but uh, we weren't. And so that's going to be what? We've got a moose? or there's a problem, somebody's mm -hmm. stuck or injured. And, and both of which causes that bit sure. of a gut check, you know, yeah. you're, you're just thinking, what do we need to do? Sure. Yeah. yeah. And I had, uh, after dropping off Rob in that location, I had probably gone about another six kilometers down the road to another clearing, maybe even a little further. I, I heard the shot too, but I thought, well, there are other hunters in the area. So I wasn't really keeping my hopes up too much that it was possibly Rob. Because our hopes had been dashed too many we, times. We, we had a little somber moments there for a while, but either way, um, you know, you're always hopeful. And um, I, I said to Rob, well, I'm going to come right at the, right at when it gets quite dark. So 
I left my area when it was getting dark, and so it took me still a while to travel with the ATV to to the meeting point where Rob had agreed to come to the Y of the road, and that's where he was going to be. And it was right in the middle of the large uh, uh, cut block that he was hunting. And as I pull up there, there's there's no Rob. And I'm looking around, and I look far down the cut block, and I see an uh, ATV headlight. And I'm going, oh, there's another ATV down there. Well, maybe they're... Maybe it's talking, somebody's talking to Rob, but as I looked a little more and a little more and I kept looking and I thought, it's not moving, it's not moving. And oh, lo and behold, I realize it's actually a fire. And I thought, oh, that must mean the moose is down. And it's uh, good on Rob for, for thinking that way. I probably wouldn't have thought that uh, to build a fire. And so I went down there to, to meet Rob and pretty exciting time. Yeah, it was, and I sure appreciated your help there, Mike. Uh, one of the things that I've learned over the year and I've had my hunting mentors teach me is how to build fire, and I've been encouraged to build fire. And when that moose went down, of course, my thing is I have my uh, my process that I follow when, when I shoot an animal, and I kind of explained a bit of it today, earlier today. I waited 10, 15 minutes before I even thought about approaching the moose because that's what I do. I don't want to have a moose that's dying as peaceful of a, as a death as it can get uh, bumped out by my presence in the area. So we want it to die um, on its own in peace, hopefully, unless it's obviously wounded and then we follow up and, and uh, take care of that animal. But I waited my 10 minutes, 15 minutes by the clock and uh, walked up to the animal, made sure it was dead. And then I cut my tag. And the very next thing I thought about was, oh boy, this is a big animal and I've got to get the guts out because out of respect to the, the animal, the animal's life and to ensure that the meat is the highest quality meat that you have the ability to eat, you've got to take care of that animal. So thinking about getting the guts out, but it's a big job and you basically need to have a helper to hold a leg up so that you can get at the, the, the gut cavity and get the gut. So I knew that was coming after dark and I knew that we had seen lots of sign of predators in the area. So I wanted to try and help Mike find me as well as deter any predators that might be interested in the moose uh, so I started a fire. I started a fire on the road right away, actually, before I went into the moose uh, to make sure that Mike could find me after I walked into to the kill site. And I made that fire nice and big because I knew I wasn't going to be anywhere near it for a while. So I dumped a whole bunch of logs on it. And then at the kill site itself, I built a fire thinking, well, that might help Mike walk into me after he found my first fire. And uh, then it's time to get down to business and get those guts out and take care of the animal as best we can. And uh, yeah, so Mike and I started working on this problem and uh, very quickly it came evident that, it became evident that uh, we both had different tacts or tactics that we wanted to employ to, to gut this animal out. And um, I learned something from you, Mike. Uh, you, you approach... Got in the Same animal me. Uh, in a different way than I do, and I certainly uh, uh, learned from from the way that you approach approach cutting an animal, and and I really appreciate that. And so, thanks for sharing with me. Oh, and uh, yeah, we got the guts out, but then we had to make a decision. You know, what were we going to do next? It's dark, very dark, and getting late. Yeah, we're tired. We're hungry. We're getting cold. 
Um, so we uh, pulled back a, a little bit of the hide, trying to help the, the moose get cooled down. And uh, one of the things that my hunting mentor, Dylan, had taught me over the years was it's important to try and get the animal up off of the ground because the ground's a great insulator. So we worked some logs underneath the animal, rolled the animal up onto the logs to allow for air to circulate underneath it. And uh, we left and went back to make sure that those that were at camp that might have been worried about our well-being were aware that we'd shot a moose. We knew they would have already likely figured that out. Uh, there was one of two conclusions. We had a mechanical issue or we shot a moose. Uh, so we headed back towards camp to let our hunting party know that we'd had success and I'll let you take it from there. We're driving driving down in the your very capable two-op ATV. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, we had to go through, this was the area that we were talking about earlier that it was through two different activations So, and several kilometers in on on between even both activations is probably like a kilometer and a half or so between each activation. Plus there's still a few more kilometers in. So here we're going out on with headlights and going through these deactivations and coming back and we meet Paul and, uh, uh, and, uh, Travis, Travis, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited now. The bearded giant. Yeah. Yeah. So we meet them and they're so happy. I mean, I think that's the first time I've ever gotten a big hug from Paul. (laughs) He's so excited. But anyways, we got back and we, we, I know they wanted to go in and get the moose and, um, I guess we sort of all together made a decision that it probably will have to leave it for the night. And one thing that, uh, again, with the fire that Rob had built, um, before we left, we really stoked it up because we thought, and? we thought. We're, there, there's a little, there's <laughs> a little oh, something else yeah. that, uh, Rob. Rob, yeah, that's right. You know, he has this, you know, he talked about me having a different technique of being, the, um, <laughs> gutting the moose out, but I've never really heard about somebody taking their underwear off and putting it on the moose. This was supposed to be the deterrent. <laughs> I thought that's what everybody did. Yeah. <laughs> but either way, you know what, anything that possibly could help the uh, predators from staying away was uh, would be successful. That's, that's great. Yeah, I actually rode behind Mike on his ATV commando. Um, oh no. It was, a, it was an exciting ride. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> but then of course we return to camp. Everybody has, uh, you know, gets rejuvenated, washes up where, you know, the excitement is now palpable between everybody. Uh, get up early the next morning and it's time to go in and, and, uh, and, and get that bounty back and, and treat that meat very well, which we, you know, thanks to to Mike's ATV, we were able to get in there. He ferried everybody up to the the uh, actual carcass uh, in, I don't know, it took about an hour and a half, I guess, to get everybody in there. Uh, it was very uh, meaningful to me to bring Finn close and, and put a knife in his hand and let him do a little bit of skinning of the of the carcass. Oh, he loved uh, it. You know, yeah, he but that, that was, you know, I felt a deeply important experience for him to, to have on that first hunt like that. When he still talks about it. Oh, it's, you know, and we, we did that. <laughs> My memory of the moment was bending over and in the first 10 seconds, as <laughs> I'm just about to touch the animal, feeling something in my eye and getting bit by something yeah. right on my eyelid. So I ended up doing, you know, the rest of the day with one eye. Well, was, you look like you got popped <laughs> in the eye there. Yeah. That was really strange. I don't know what that up. was, but... Uh, Oh, we got them all quartered up. Uh, it worked very well. We uh, one of our techniques that we will share is to take a 
rechargeable battery reciprocating saw in there with us, which made the quartering fantastic. In the end, when we got to the butcher a couple of days later, those four quarters were all within just like a couple of pounds of each other. So mm -hmm. perfect quartering up. It, it worked well. We were able to load those quarters onto the machine to get it back to camp. Uh, then ferry them on to Travis's machine back and then eventually up onto the, the game pole for them to, to age a couple of days before we went home. So it was good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I just wanted to speak to a couple of things and, and I don't know if it's pod, podcast worthy, Travis, you cut this out later if you don't want it in there, but. Uh, we'll cut that out. Done. Yeah. yeah. Forget that. I don't know. What are you talking about? I don't know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but that's the character. And uh Two things that kind of came to mind as, as we're telling this story is uh, how I felt, uh, Mikey spoke to it, when, when we got back through the deactivations and we saw both Travis and Paul at the, the, the last deactivation before camp, uh, the furthest point that uh, we, they could have got in, in relation to the, the downed animal, both both Paul and Travis were there and they were concerned, right? There was some concern because you didn't know for sure, but Paul had put on his Bubba coveralls. He, he anticipated that there was a good chance that uh, we, we shot an animal. But we got off the, the ATV and and uh, Paul asked what, what had happened. And Mike said something along the lines like, Rob shot a moose. And Paul's reaction was so genuine and so joyous. I, I, like, I'll take that with me. For the rest of my life, it was it was pretty special. It was just, it it was something else to behold. So uh, there was like no holding back that that joy that 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 you experienced through other people oh. uh, mm -hmm. being successful in the hunt, and and I really appreciate that. And, um, and no animosity, no nothing. That's that's a you know the the part of that's it's the group, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and that was that was there. I mean, there was pure pure joy, pure emotion, and. There was no hiding that. I actually tried to get a picture of that joy and emotion, the anticipation of it in the camp. It, it didn't turn out well on camera. Oh, yeah. But yeah. Uh, and Paul's like, why are you taking my picture? I'm like, you got to see yourself, Paul. Yeah. I mean, you can't contain it. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, it was good. Yeah. When when you heard it was arms up in the air, face turned up to this guy, and uh, yeah, it was it was really special. Yeah. Uh, and then just character. So uh, character for, for you, Travis, was like, I know that you you had things that you needed to do. And, and we were talking the last day of your hunt. And the next day, you had planned to leave. And uh, there's a couple of times where, where Travis showed character on this trip uh, in, that stand out in my mind. And, and one was joining us on the hunt after we weren't successful on, on the group draw. And he knew that... Uh, you had the opportunity to shoot like a spike fork moose, maybe, but low odds. And you still came out on the hunt with us because you committed to that hunt. And I certainly appreciate that. And I really appreciated the fact that you were willing to kind of stay around for as long as you could, even though you'd planned to leave uh, earlier than that and to help us with processing the animal and getting the animal out of the field. And when... Uh, given those opportunities to to test a person's character and um, someone is willing to go the extra mile and stick around camp to to join the hunt when they, they have low odds of success, to pitch in and, and pull the animal out of the field, even though you're really supposed to be back at home or you've got other commitments. Uh, to me, 
like these two guys and Mike as well, uh, they're guys that I would I would hunt with in the future uh, just by their actions. They they've proven to be good hunting companions and uh, and folks with with character that uh, I just wanted to recognize. Hmm. Well, that's something that the uh, the woods will bring out in people, right? It's it's a good mirror of a person's character and ability, and it's a good time to uh, for self reflection. You know, there's not uh, there's not much hiding when you spend a week or more together with a group of people in a hunting camp. You, yes. our, our, our flaws of, become evident. Speaking of not hiding, one of the pieces of equipment that Mike brought <laughs> was a shower, a portable shower. What <laughs> what, what make is that? Uh, we'll give them a shameless plug here. Uh, uh, Zodi. So Zodi makes a whole series of showers from a little small one That's right, right up in, and Mike shows up with the, uh, looks like a big chrome fire extinguisher, which you heat up on the burners and uh, it, the thing actually has a thermometer on the side. And then, like I say, not hiding anything, watching Mike have his shower there. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> with <though>. his Zodi. <laughs> and using it to actually do the dishes and everything else to get, you know, pretty much almost immediate hot water on demand with that. That was, that was a, an excellent piece of kit and, you know, your praise, but, uh, you know, watching him sitting out there is, uh, picked a perfect day for that it. Kind of that podcast, afternoon it was it? warm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we talk about after the hunt? So the hunt's over, uh, everyone's packing up. I think, uh, I had now gone home Yes. and you guys were going to hunt for a couple more days, save for the fact that the weather had turned. The weather was starting to look like it was going to get nasty right. and it was warmer. actually getting warmer, which is probably warm. more than, um, anything, you know, of a concern and this beautiful animal that, uh, had given up its life for us is just not worth wasting, you know, no. you, you know, um, cooling it down you know, getting it to the butcher, all this sort of took a priority at that point. So we, uh, packed her up. Um, I guess it took us a, you know, a half a day to get the, the tent and everything down. We went to the beautiful, uh, let's not name that motel partway back and then, uh, had a nice meal, uh, ate some fresh uh, vegetables and stuff like that, which was good. Got up the next day and, uh, went to, and do we give a shout out to him or does he want to keep it a secret? Oh, I think he's, uh, we'll, we'll keep it a secret. We'll keep it a secret. An excellent butcher in, uh, in the Fraser Valley that, that did a fantastic job cutting the meat, made some fantastic sausage for us. Uh, everybody got a, a good portion of meat. He was, he was a, I think it was just shy of 400 pounds exactly on the hook when we got to the butcher. So you know, that's pretty good that, um, you know, he was, he was a mature bull. He wasn't an old bull, uh, but there was certainly a, an adequate amount to share amongst four guys, um, and beautiful quality meat. It's just been uh, a treat every bite that we've had. I know at our house, that's the way we feel. Oh, that's been fantastic. Yeah. Totally yeah. agree. Yeah. Very nice. And, and we were, we didn't loosen an ounce of meat, uh, due to spoilage or anything else like that. The timing was good. Yeah. It was interesting. So when we went to this unnamed butcher who uh, works by word of mouth and isn't the busiest butcher in the lower mainland as a result. Um, we saw some other moose hanging and uh, one moose in particular had a bit of a tinge to it, oh. a bit of a green tinge to it. And it, it came down to it. He had to actually cut a bunch of meat off of the moose quarters, unfortunately, because 
those hunters weren't able to get the moose out of the field in time to ensure that it didn't spoil. And we're all about trying to do the best we can to take care of that meat after you pull the trigger. And, and as a result, the meat tastes that much better on the plate. And I don't know the circumstance of that particular moose and, and how it came to be that way. Sometimes it's almost inevitable, but uh, uh, in our case, I sure was uh, grateful that we'd taken the decision to get out of the field as quickly as we could mm-hmm. to get that moose out to the butcher. I, I think you can plan a 10 or 12 or 14 day hunt. But if you do harvest early, you have to have that contingency plan. Either somebody's leaving early to go to the butcher or you're going to collapse the camp. Because if you, you know, you're not doing anything respectful or ethical to waste meat by staying there longer. No. You know, that that's the gift. That's, that is the, you know, that's the gold or brass ring, uh, you know, when you do get get something like that. But to... To, to, to try and be greedy, to get more, it's very wasteful. Yeah, yeah. well, you know. fr- freezer is the only option, really. You'd have to bring in a, a decent-sized freezer True. and start uh, cooling the meat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. I, I mean, you know, we could almost do another podcast on just the logistics of the, the some of the equipment that we take. And, mm-hmm. and you do see in some hunting camps where people have a large chest freezer and they're running yep. that off of their, you know, they're, they're running that off of their, their generator or, or whatever the case may be. And uh, we, in fact, had a chest freezer. Yeah, yeah, which was actually more just though to keep our food in, you know, or what, what we were going to consume. Uh, we were able to freeze the heart. We put uh, some other parts in there, mm-hmm. the, the grouse. And, uh, you know, that uh, that was able to go in there for the return trip. And I have we have used that uh, freezer in the past for things like freezing bear hides, you know, you know getting a bear early in a trip. Uh, it, it's easier than to try and salt the hide and everything else just to roll it up and freeze it. That works good too. But that was part of our plan. If we had to, we knew that we could stick a quarter into the freezer, cool get that down. quarter cooled down. We'd pull it out, hang it, put the next quarter in. Yeah. And uh, there's a bit of a theme coming out in our conversation today, and that's planning. And I think it's important to to have a good plan. And, and we were fortunate in our trip that uh, kind of our our Seal Gare led us down a path of good planning from the get-go and that plan included having a plan to take uh, some tactics, employ some tactics to take care of the meat. Well, why don't we leave that to the listeners if they want to leave a comment, if they'd like to hear about how we plan for this from start to finish, what we would bring and all the logistics about that. And we can do another podcast on that, but you would have have to have listened through this whole podcast up until this point in order to reach that. But if they do like that, comment, let us know, and we will do that podcast. I guess as it's going on a little bit here, maybe we should look at after the hunt, is there anything that you guys would do differently? Hmm. I think we should have brought one more vehicle. I was pushing for that. I figured that... From a uh, I contingency think, uh, standpoint. I, I would say, you know, now, and, and we, you know, uh, for, for that, it had something happen that I, I think I would have liked to have done different. You got a flat tire, by the way, going up there. We I can't did. forget that. So, <laughs> Actually, so, I did forget about that. That was yeah. on the trailer. It just ripped it. Yeah, going in. So again, on another thought too, is just having that ability to get all of your gear out if there is that kind of an emergency. So between the vehicle that we traveled up on, which had... Mike's machine in Mike's trailer, my machine on the back of my truck. We had the eight foot box of my truck to transport plus Mike's trailer. 
leaving with the meat at the end, we were pretty darn close to our maximum GVW, you know, and that's mm. a, and then with the amount of distance we had to travel on other than paved roads, that, that becomes an issue. So yeah, I would have said one more vehicle. Yeah, or a larger trailer, really. Right, if you had quite right. a bit of a longer trailer, bigger trailer, S- we would have more Susan? capability. Susan, are you listening? <laughs> uh, you know what comes to mind for me was communications. So as much as we planned our hunt, we planned to have communications tools with us. It's important when you're on these group draws to, you need to be in, to have the ability to immediately communicate with your co-hunters, the people that have drawn the, the tag and uh, share the hunt with you. Ethically, legally, yeah. safety, you, you must. So yeah. uh, in our circumstance, we had a combination of amateur radios. So Travis have his, has his amateur radio license. I have my amateur radio license. So we had a combination of amateur radios and FRS radios. So the, the little family radios and um, in-reach devices. And from my experience, there's two things that those amateur radios by far are a much better tool at uh, communicating over long distances than those little FRS radios. Uh, the radio that I have has 20 times more power than a little FRS radio. So you are able to reach out and talk to someone and thus extend the distance you can effectively hunt in a group with those radios. Uh, The little in-reach devices, yeah, you got to pay a monthly fee for them, but you can text each other with them and they are the bee's knees. In fact, I think every hunter should have one of those things. They are something else. Uh, Satellite communication is the, 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 tool that everyone should have when they're out on these hunts. Uh, the two-way communication option of those, some of these devices is is uh, groundbreaking technology, and I encourage everyone to think about getting them. How about you, Mike? Anything different? Well, no, I would say I, I would like to add exactly. I, I When I went back, I started looking at these radios a little bit, and I, I did uh, investigate the one that you had there, Rob, and I f- did find out exactly what you're saying is really everybody should have at least that level or better. You know, so that that would be something. Um, other than just a slight modification in supply list, I I can't think of anything. You kind of uh, kind of surprised us with this question uh, to, to think about it, but uh, nothing really comes to mind other than a few small things, supplies, and maybe the radios. And yeah, the only thing I can think of would be uh, ten ply tires instead of eight ply for me on the trailer, and I think that would have uh, saved me from having to swap out the one that blew. Thankfully, I had dual axles on the back and no damage. But, uh, that's the only thing I can think of. It was, uh, it was a really good group. It was a fantastic hunt. We got some great memories, uh, not all of which we can share on the podcast, but it was, uh, I mean, we got the, uh, the shower memory, which I wasn't there for. That's, uh, that was kind of interesting. That was and worth we, every oh, minute. Missed out. Oh and, yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, it was funny when we're talking about putting the, uh, underwear on the moose, I just get visions of, uh, he hung the underwear on the antlers, so he didn't put yeah, the didn't underwear put it on the eaten parts. Yeah, no. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it, it wouldn't fit. It was. <laughs> I, I can't figure out why the, the underwear wouldn't fit on the moose. <laughs> but and of course, we got there. You weren't there. Your underwear is on the moose. Oh yeah. We had to touch, to touch it. your <laughs> underwear to take it off the moose to start skinning it before you. <laughs> you gotta employ the chopstick technique. Yeah, no, that's right. But, oh, that's just, good. Well, why don't we, uh, why don't we call it there? And uh, if people want to hear about uh, anything else on this or if there's areas that they'd want expanded on, they'll let us know. 
Yeah, sounds great. And thank you, thank yeah, you, Travis, good. for putting this together. Thank you very and, much, Travis. And geez, it was nice being with you guys again under this kind of a circumstance. We were hoping to to do this out in the bush, but I think it was a, a lot more comfortable to do it. Definitely comfortable. <laughs> well, so that's a wrap up there. Can you give me one more moose call? But we'll do this one closer, and I'll put that like that, so you can be on this one or no, on this one, and so we'll we'll have the two pickups. But you can get close to it, so we'll see what it happens. You want a bull call? Sure. <laughs>